Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. And so that's why it just struck me so strangely that they would be so hostile to questions. But I, I mean, I would welcome them on the show. I mean, here. Oh, if, I would too. Me yeah. too. Global Alliance folks, call me. Yeah. You may have banned Mary Beth, but <laughs> uh, you didn't ban me and we're not banning you. And we actually believe in open lines of communication. Yeah. And so if you would like to have someone on our show to talk about the mission of Global Alliance and ethics and transparency, we, we would be more than happy to yeah. help you. So it sounds like the Global Alliance seems to mean well, but they also seem pretty misguided yeah. to reject questions about how they do things. I mean, is that not at the core of a trade organization is to talk about what you're doing and why you're doing it in this day and age? You have to be open to questions and you can't be shutting people out because don't you don't so. like yeah. the question. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West, and here we are, back together at last. Yeah, I know, finally, we're back. Uh, Lately, we've been two podcasters passing in the night, but without a shared microphone. It's kind of like a misplaced Frank Sinatra song. Well, we've both been traveling a lot lately, and the beginning of this year, I can't believe it how high intensity and busy it's been with new projects and quite a few new opportunities for our agency. Very exciting, but very busy. Just leaving this afternoon to go see my son in Florida and getting out of the rain. Trying to get out of this rain and gloomy weather. Um, And you had a trip to New York recently too, didn't you? That was mostly for fun. Yeah. I I, I did one meeting while I was up there, but it was mostly for fun and um, got to see Ed Harris in To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. He wow. was fantastic. Oh, I'm jealous. Yeah. That's so, fan- I'm such that a is theater fantastic. junkie. Oh, and yesterday we found out we won nine Addy Awards. <gasps> Congratulations so, to the Fletcher team. That is fantastic. You. Yeah, we won. We had nine submissions and we won for all of them. We don't know what yet. We'll yeah. find out later this month what we actually won. But you've been hit with the travel bug too, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, My husband and I have an annual Blackberry Farm trip that we do with some friends. So big plug for our client of the peaceful side of the Smokies, which, yes. you know, I remember on our Whiskey Trail podcast that we did, we talked up Blackberry Farm a good bit. So it was a fantastic trip. It was wonderful. But then right on the heels of that, I uh, tagged along with my husband, who's a car dealer, and we go every year to um, an auto industry national conference. And they always have such fantastic speakers. They One of the keynotes they had this year was former British Prime Minister David Cameron. I would love to hear him. Well, he was he was fantastic. I really enjoyed his message. He was very well received. Um, you know, just talked about global politics and kind of what's going on on the global stage. And it was just, it was really well received. But I have to say, <laughs> these auto industry conferences, and of course, not coming from the industry myself or having grown up in the industry, it is so interesting because I've been married to my husband for more than 20 years. So I've been tagging along to some of these conferences now for about two decades. And it's amazing how much the vibe in the industry, largely a male-dominated industry, as you can imagine. I mean, we're talking 
I mean, I would say historically it was, you know, 90 to 95% male industry. Now that's changing and that's a, that's a great thing. You know, we're getting more gender diversity and more diversity in general, but walking the uh, exhibit hall floor at this conference, there was not a single Vegas showgirl at any of the <laughs> booths trying They've to entice them out of men. Their booths this yeah, year. yeah, exactly. Trying to get men to, uh, you know, visit the booth and talk to the sales rep. So, I mean, I think that's probably a step in the right direction. That's such an antiquated tactic. Well, it it is, but it's so funny. I noticed about five years ago, I mean, the first time I went to this conference 20 years ago, I mean, it was everywhere. I mean, you would say, I I would say maybe every fifth or sixth booth, there were hired women there to you know, kind of handing out the tchotchkes or whatever, but scantily clad in in a, a lot of cases. And five years ago, I noticed far fewer of them. This time, not one. I mean, they I think, got the memo. Yeah, the industry think, got the memo. Yeah, I think the whole Me <laughs> We're not Too thing. It anymore. <laughs> yeah, the whole Me Too thing has finally come home to roost. And I think, but you know, you can't have you know large corporations out there stating they have inclusive cultures and are, you know, in, in tune with what societal expectations are nowadays and then have an exhibitor booth with <laughs> clearly such a sexist approach to their marketing. Yeah. So so a lot has changed, but, you know, as much as some things have changed, others haven't. I did notice at this conference that there were a lot of all-white, all-male, all-age 50 to 60 panels, like panel discussions. Right. And there was one that I went to, there were six of these gentlemen up on stage. And of course they were all, now that they've gotten rid of coat and tie nowadays, everybody just has the button down, the, the you know, the, the sport jacket. and the, But they all looked exactly alike. All six Fraternity of these. boy costume. <laughs> well, it could be deemed that way. But I mean, and all of them were very knowledgeable and I, I'm not, you know, knocking them for what they brought to the table in terms of what they were actually saying. But, you know, I recently on social media came across this new terminology of manal and wanal. A manal is a male-only panel. <laughs> And a wannel is a white-only panel. I love that. I'm <laughs> going to use yeah, that. Yeah, and there's apparently this whole social media watch now about, and they're like calling out companies or calling out conferences that host professional development sessions that are like all white panels or all male or just, you know, no gender or, or racial you know, diversity. Well, shown. you know, my grandfather, well, my great grandfather started the first Pontiac dealership in Western North Carolina in 1928. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. So we have that in common because yeah, I grew up yeah. in an auto dealer. I, I grew up running around the dealership pretending like I was um, Cheryl Ladd and Charlie's <laughs> Angels, like getting in the Trans Ams, pretending like I was driving them. The Trans Ams, yes. the big backboard. The Trans Ams, oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's interesting because I, I'm going off topic here because we're going to talk about ethics washing today. But the auto industry really has been probably, if not the slowest, one of the most slowest to come into the 21st century when it comes to recognizing that women are buying more than 50% or influencing more than 50% of sales. Right. But yet their, their television spots usually have a really hot woman in the commercial or... 
a really fast talking man. Yeah. It's like, and it's like, come on, like just talk to us like we are normal, educated people. Right. But anyway, so yeah. that's all I'm going to say about that right now. No, but you're right. You're right. As usual, I find it fascinating how in this day and age of diversity being the buzzword. Yeah. Big corporations still are talking about diversity and even show diversity in their ads. So it's very predictable now when you look at an ad, you always see the diversity metric being met, whatever that is for the company. But when it comes to who was chosen for the decision-making table, change apparently can be hard to come by. Right, right. And and that's really where at these conferences, it's like who is showing up at the microphone because those are the spokespersons for the company. And that's really the telltale sign, I think. But the same holds true, I think, for a lot of things. I remember back uh, when the term greenwashing came to the fore about 15 years ago or so with the, when the whole eco-friendly movement started in earnest as a marketing effort. You know, the idea that companies touted their environmentally conscious messaging and that supposed street cred that they had, but some of them were the biggest polluters known to humankind. Yeah, and backlash movements were born even before hashtags became a thing. And with that example, the label was greenwashing, and that was a play on whitewashing, the notion that you just paint all over your sins with whitewash paint, which is the color of pure driven snow, which is me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but also pink washing. And when we talk, we still yeah. talk about pink washing when it comes to marketing to women right. and how you can't just shrink it and pink it and yeah. expect women to like it. That's ridiculous. So public perceptions aren't fooled that way. So now we have some diversity washing. It's the same concept, right. really. It is. It really is. And it all goes down to aligning your company values in a very authentic way with how you're going to operate as a company. And that does include, you know, how you're going to include other voices at the table. And we mentioned earlier about like gay washing. I mean, Melissa Carter on her episode, if you, and listeners, if you've not heard Melissa Carter's episode on marketing to the lesbian community, you've got to listen to it. She's, she just did a fantastic job on that. But one of her funny comments that she made was the lesbian community and really the gay community too, it's been like scraps from the straight table is how she yes. described the marketing effort. It's like, you know, you don't want to give us the you know the full meal of having a real direct message or being treated as a fully vested customer. You're just kind of giving us a, you know, some kind of hollow message that right. is supposed Dangling to... Carrots, yeah, and it's from sort of straight table. Yeah, it's kind of a pandering situation too. So anyway. So that brings us to the subject of today's podcast, which is ethics washing. I came across this new term on social media and it caught my eye as something that we really needed to cover on misinterpreted for obvious reasons. And then guess what else? Ethics washing is now a hashtag. (laughs) Well, so you know, it has to be a real thing, right? And it is, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. it legitimacy. If you have a hashtag, you're legitimate. (laughs) Exactly. Well, of course, I see it happen every day, of course. I mean, and and, and this has been some of my, I guess, struggle within the public relations profession too. Well, uh, I don't know if our listeners followed along this past February, but... Word has it that the Global Alliance for Public Relations and Communication Management placed you, Mary Beth, into their, what I'm going to call Global Alliance Jail. 
<laughs> so what was all that about? It, was okay, the, it created well, an international incident. Apparently it did. Well, guilty is charged. And at this point, it's a point of pride for me because I think I've done a great service for the public relations community to demonstrate and this is my own editorial comment, what an insecure and showboating organization the Global Alliance apparently is because I think it at least has proven itself to be based on uh, this whole situation that unfolded. Well, I followed the whole thing on social media and then what you posted about it and I actually saw that you were banned from contacting the Global Alliance and and you shared the email with me and and it was it was pretty hilarious, yeah. really. I, I how think so how too. did you get yourself banned well, from I, contacting <laughs> an organization? Well, I asked questions. And that they was, banned you for asking questions? Yes. What kind of questions were you asking? Well, well, technically, the Global Alliance Board said that I revealed to others on Twitter that I had asked questions of the Global Alliance regarding ethics. And in doing so, I was uh, that was, quote, totally unacceptable that I revealed that I had asked them questions that they had not answered. And you revealed what the questions were? I just revealed what my correspondence to them was. I never revealed any correspondence back to me, but yeah, yeah, so they didn't like that. Well, how did, I mean, so they've banned you from any communication? Well, this is kind of how it works. They have indicated to me that unless a PRSA representative speaks on my behalf to them or... I use legal representation. I'm not to contact them again. Okay. <laughs> this is kind of crazy. So I, I've heard of the Global Alliance. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of them over the years, but I have to say I haven't paid that much attention to them. So what is the Global Alliance? Okay, so the Global Alliance is a consortium of PR member organizations. So like the Public Relations Society of America here, which is our you know, industry organization here in the U.S., but like the counterpart organizations all over the world. So in different nations, they may have a public relations professional organization, you know, just a trade association. So like PRCA is a member of the Global Alliance. No, they are not. No, they're not. Okay. No, they are not. And um, I think that's actually kudos to PRCA based on <laughs> what I've seen the Global Alliance do. So are they so, supposed to kind of be like the UN of global PR (laughs) associations? Well, I think they would like to think so. I mean, in fact, after this podcast hits the airwaves, don't be surprised if they take up that moniker, Kelly. (laughs) I just don't expect any credit for it. But at any rate, the Global Alliance was getting started, I guess it was about 20 years ago. It was around the time that I was on the PRSA, Public Relations Society of America National Board myself. It was around, I don't know, just after 2000 that they got started. So the Global Alliance, just to let you know, their stated mission, and if I'm reading from their website, is, quote, to unify the public relations profession, raise professional standards all over the world, share knowledge for the benefit of its members, and be the global voice for public relations in the public interest, end quote. Well, it sounds like that's a pretty good mission. I mean, I... How do they do that, and is that what they do? Well, I, at this point, I have no idea. I have no idea what they do. So what have they done in the past 10 years to support their mission? For example, how do you quantify if you've raised professional standards all over the world? Yeah, well, so all of those things in the mission, I, you know, I have no idea. I mean, they may very well have some good accomplishments, and I, I mean, I will 
certainly say that, I mean, and I would su support that if you're supporting the profession in a positive way, that's a good thing. I know that they've issued quite a few statements about ethics and standards, but statements alone don't really raise standards without any action to back them up, which of course, I mean, that was at the crux of my now notorious questions that I was asking them for which they have now banned me. So bottom line, if the Global Alliance has performed to any metrics assigned to its mission, I, I, I mean, Kelly, I couldn't begin to tell you what that even looks like because their website isn't really specific about it. I mean, I think that they may, you know, they, they don't have good visibility, I think, for people to understand. And so that's why it just struck me so strangely that they would be so hostile to questions. But I, I mean, I would welcome them on the show. I mean, here. Oh, if, I would too. Me yeah. too. Global Alliance folks, call me. Yeah. You may have banned Mary Beth, but <laughs> uh, you didn't ban me and we're not banning you. And we actually believe in open lines of communication. Yeah. And so if you would like to have someone on our show to talk about the mission of Global Alliance and ethics and transparency, we, we would be more than happy to yeah. help you. So it sounds like the Global Alliance seems to mean well, but they also seem pretty misguided yeah. to uh, reject questions about how they do things. I mean, is that not at the core of a trade organization is to talk about what you're doing and why you're doing it in this day and age? You have to be open to questions and you can't be shutting people out because don't you don't so. like yeah. the question. Yeah. I mean, that's... And I, I come from a journalism background. I mean, you and I, I think, both were trained as journalists early in our career. And we're supposed to be welcoming of questions and welcome. I mean, whether it, it's coming from a journalist or whether it's just coming from a stakeholder. Well, and it's not like you're asking stuff that's none of your business, right? Right. Because you're a member of PRSA. I'm a member of PRSA. We pay dues to PRSA who pays dues to the Global Alliance, right. which therefore right. makes us a member yeah. of that organization well, as well. stakeholders, for sure. Stakeholders. So they owe us some reasonable information to reasonable questions. Yeah. And going back to our topic today of ethics washing, is the Global Alliance doing that? Are they preaching ethics to everyone else but not meeting, holding up to their well, own standards? in this example, I, th I think that's the heart of the issue. It's at the heart of my current issue with the Global Alliance, for sure. It's also been at the heart of my issues since 2017 with PRSA. I mean, both organizations have so-called ethics codes that forbid <laughs> the very behaviors that they are now either engaging in or that they're defending and deflecting. So that's the problem. Yeah, I've always been a member of PRSA. and But once again, I think as professionals, we're busy, we join these organizations and we don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on. Right. And maybe that's kind of fostered this they're, they don't feel like they need to be transparent because nobody's really paying attention right, to them. So I've right. had a hard time figuring out what to make of the whole PRSA. Yeah, I mean, me too. Mess. I mean, it's been a long story. I mean, going back some years ago, rogue leader situation, passive and complicit board, zero accountability, retribution and retaliation culture by leadership. I mean, I won't go into all of the details, but you get the picture of what yeah. we're kind of dealing with. And just recently, the PRSA National Board voted last October without ever even notifying members ahead of time that it was passing a new board policy to start concealing the members of its audit committee. Is that even legal? I mean, isn't that against... Well, okay, so what this means is the people who are supposed to ensure financial soundness and rule following by PRSA staff and leadership both, 
they are now allowed to operate totally under cover of night. I mean, like nobody knows who they are, whether they have conflicts of interest, whether they are in roles that are not appropriate for them to be evaluating themselves, for example. I mean, what does that tell you? Well, it's really disheartening. It sounds like ethics washing by definition, maybe yeah. even worse. It's weird. How does a PR society nonprofit organization who is relying on dues from professional members and they preach communication ethics and transparency and free flow of information. Yeah. But then they're hiding who's on their own audit committee. I mean, how does that happen? Well, those that's my question. And those have been my question uh, questions. I mean, as it turns out, though, PRSA doesn't like questions either. I publicly filed a complaint with the PRSA board on this matter. And it's a complaint that they've ignored to date, which sadly is now what PRSA does nowadays. Then I noticed, uh, and this is just in recent months, that the Global Alliance had put out an announcement that they plan to roll out a hashtag ethics matter promotion. And so I did a little bit of digging from that just out of curiosity, and I found that the Global Alliance, you know, they have their own code of ethics, and it requires its member organizations like PRSA to sign on and endorse that code as a condition of Global Alliance membership. So, you know, PRSA actually is supposed to be accountable to the Global Alliance for following its code. Well, what is their code in regard to transparency when it would come to something like an audit committee? Well, I think their code of ethics is very similar to PRSAs in that they advocate for stakeholders to be able to have free access to information that informs decision-making and that you're not supposed to impede people's access to information that they're entitled to. And I mean, certainly I can understand if they don't want to disclose maybe certain personnel records or things that, you know, maybe are somehow proprietary in nature, but audit committee members, that is that does not fall into that category. So just as we as our PRSA members, we have to we sign on and we agree to the to abide by the PRSA code. If we want to be members of the organization, then PRSA has to sign on and do the same to be a member of the Global well, Alliance. Well, theoretically, I mean, and that's exactly my understanding. That like that's exactly what the Global Alliance at least says on its website. So what you're saying is correct. It would seem like PRSA would be in jeopardy of being kicked out of the Global Alliance if PRSA were found to be violating the Global Alliance's own ethics code. What, I mean, with hiding the audit committee members, shouldn't the Global Alliance investigate? If that situation actually is occurring, that seems like a pretty big deal. And if yeah. they're going to be the, the UN of the, our industry, <laughs> right, should right. they not be having a say in that? Well, I think that, and that was the reason that I notified them about this. I mean, and, um, and I'll, just as an example with PRSA, in 2019, PRSA allowed its prior year's board treasurer and I just can't make this up, to serve as the audit committee chair to oversee the audit on his own oversight work as treasurer. So that's about the biggest conflict of interest no-no that you can pull in the audit world. And I, I realize PR people don't really live in the audit world all that much, but we do l live in a transparency ethic and authenticity world. We are supposed to be the ones who are putting that forward. 
it's kind of like a political candidate being the treasurer of their own campaign finances, and they right. go back and audit their own campaign. It, it, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it, it's conflict of interest on acid, really. I mean, and you know, now PRSA has this growing history of investigating and exonerating themselves, which I've seen firsthand. So that's a problem too. Yeah, it's not the organization I used to know at all. Yeah. So, well, I asked the Global Alliance Board last December, and I copied the PRSA national chair so that she would be fully aware of my concerns and my communications. I I didn't go around her or go around the board in any way with that. But I sent a note to the Global Alliance, and I asked whether the GA had compliance standards or specific requirements for its ethics code, and if so, what are they? I mean, they were pretty simple questions. And the holidays passed, New Year's passed, January passed. I mean, we're talking seven weeks or so passed up until late January. No answers from the Global Alliance Board to my questions. I received an acknowledgement that my questions had been received, but just no answer to them. And now it's been more than two months. Well, I don't understand why the Global Alliance would not want to answer these questions and why they would just completely ignore your request for information. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, for this hashtag Ethics Matter Twitter promotion that they're sponsoring in February, you know, I posed the unanswered questions again. And on Twitter, the Global Alliance had contradicted itself saying public-facing communication, no, we don't police anyone. But then they followed up by saying... We reserve the right to suspend and expel members for failure to uphold ethical standards. Well, it can't be both ways. No. It's got to be either one or the other. Either we're going to be an accountable profession to ethics or we're not. Right. As we have this conversation over and over all the time. Yeah. Well, and then I received, and that's what prompted this email that I got a few, a few days later from the Global Alliance telling me that due to that Twitter thread where I and several other PR professionals were asking questions and just having, you know, a very civil conversation, they said that they would no longer accept communications from me, except, as I mentioned, except through my PRSA rep, who incidentally is the former CEO of PRSA who left the organization in July of last year really abruptly, and no no one can understand why he's still the Global Alliance treasurer when he's neither a member of PRSA nor on staff of PRSA. So that's a whole other issue. Not even a member? Not a member, no. How did you confirm that? I asked them about it, and he's, he's still listed on their website. He's, his photo and everything is still on the website as national treasurer. But he's not, he's a treasurer of an organization. Of, of the Global Alliance. Okay, of the Global Alliance, but he's not a member of the organization that's a member of the Global the, Alliance. Yeah, that he's supposed to be representing. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I, either I can go through him or I can go through my, quote, legal representative. <laughs> Who would that be? Are you supposed to hire an attorney <laughs> well, to send an email for yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, that's what they basically said. I mean, they apparently want me to hire a lawyer for the privilege of sending communications to them. <laughs> wow. Well, it's like they're going to haul you into international court like the Hague because <laughs> you send well, a request well, for hey, information. You know, if, if, if they're buying, I'll take a trip to the Netherlands. It's on my bucket list. Take me. <laughs> Do they have a spa? <laughs> yeah. As long as if, they have a spa. Oh, uh, yeah. If there were, I bet uh, it would be far less international conflict less in the world. Less casting of stones, more hot stone massages. Oh, yeah. Sign me up on that. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, this looks like an epic ethics spell to me. Yeah, not I just think ethics so. washing. I mean, it's just plain mm-hmm. out wrong. And it sounds very much to me like they're trying really hard to intimidate you or just yeah. get you to go away with your tail between your legs, which we know you're not going to do, when you have every right to ask these questions. And I think that's what's offensive is that the disrespect and the arrogance, like the rules apply to everybody, but not them. Yeah. And by the way, how many women are on their board? I mean, is this another <laughs> well, mantle? I'm a, yeah, I'm a bit unsure of their full board, how many women there are, but of the Global Alliance's executive committee officers, which is, that, that that's basically who I got this kind of nasty letter from. There's only one woman of five officers, on there. Okay, so 20%, which is, and our profession is 70 to 80% female. I mean, yeah. we're very heavily driven female industry, but the Global Alliance can only muster up 20% female representation. <laughs> uh, yeah. I got it. Yeah, got yeah, it. yeah. Well, I've had some terrific colleagues on Twitter who saw the entire dialogue and were very supportive of me, and I appreciate that. And I will say the Public Relations and Communications Association in London, which we're members of, their leadership in London issued a public statement on this matter directly supporting me by name. And that meant a lot that they stepped up to do that because they they saw this as wrong as well. I agree. And when I saw that, that's when I said, well, you definitely have created an international incident that required a response from another international organization. But I think it sent the message that what the Global Alliance is doing is not okay. And it, and it's a really good thing that at least one PR organization in the world gets it. And I'm really glad we joined PRCA. Yeah. Well, in the wake of all this drama, I just want to ask you, Kelly, what types of telltale signs or behaviors wave a red flag at you about a leader or an organization that's into ethics washing? Because I, this this whole experience has made me want to get outside perspectives on this because it's just been a bee in my bonnet for years now. Yes. Uh, this whole thing of, you know, we're going to tout, you know, industry ethics on the one hand, but we're not going to follow our own rules. So I was just kind of curious how, you know, what your take is on when you see this kind of thing happen, what are some of the signs that you see there in your experience? Well, that's a hard one because, first of all, I've been on my own in my own business for so long. So most of my experience, I'd have to go back to when I was working for other agencies yeah. or in-house yeah. in communications. And I would say that a red flag is when there are lots of closed-door meetings shrouded in secrecy. Right. And maybe the leadership team doesn't realize that people notice, but they notice. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, what's going on in there? And then maybe there's something going on in the company. And it can be even something as, this is one situation that I remember, it can be even something as simple or as basic as freezing pay raises. And there is, you know, all this kind of shroud of secrecy. And then it trickles down that you find out that pay raises are frozen for not everybody, 
even though it was presented that they were. So right. to me, that's always, I always get a little, um, I break out in hives when I start to see all these <laughs> closed door meetings. Well, and the and pay no thing communication. is, yeah, the pay thing is obviously so important too, when it comes to gender equity right. and how women are compensated. We know from the statistics that women, you know, for the same jobs, for the same amount of skill or talent or experience are so very often not being compensated equally. So, right. and then you have those same companies very often saying how much they embrace diversity and how much they are a woman-friendly company. So, yeah, to me, I think that any situation where a company is trying to present its brand in one way and they just will not make the procedural changes or the policy changes to kind of follow through with that. Right. I mean, it really brands have to think about their brand from the inside out. Yeah, yeah. But so what do you think leaders should do to make sure that part of their authenticity profile is real and that it resonates? And I mean, if you get ethics wrong, there's little else you're going to get right and it can destroy you. I agree. And we all know we lost Harold Burson in January. You know, he was a longtime industry legend within public relations and a native of Memphis, Tennessee, by the way. And um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And um, the biggest part of that loss to me was just his wisdom. I wrote a blog post right after his passing. You know, I did an internship with his company mm-hmm. when I was a University of Tennessee student. But that wisdom, he always said that what an organization says matters little if they can't get the decision-making right. And that is really the gem of wisdom that, well, I think will live in infamy for a lot of companies that have failed to hold true to that. I mean, you cannot be putting forth a message that says one thing and then your actions say another. So leaders need to make good policy first, then follow it consistently and let the communications then emerge from there. I mean, I think about another example out there is just the Wells Fargo example. And I've talked about this on one other podcast, the one with um, Shailen, we talked a little bit about it. But, you know, with Wells Fargo, you know, they had all of this ethics scandal and it's one of the biggest retail banking scandals in the history of banking with all these fake accounts that they opened up and how they treated their whistleblowers internal to the company. There have been all these exposés about that. They've had some of the largest judgments now placed against them for all of that. And yet, interestingly, in PRSA... PRSA has given a whole bunch of awards to Wells Fargo for their PR programs in the wake of that, doing things like community involvement or Wells Fargo talks a lot about diversity and all of that. So it's like, but I mean, how much do those things matter if you can't even be honest about the accounts you're opening up? I mean, you get awarded for the programs that you put in place to correct your reputation with the public. Yeah, or or to redirect attention is what it was. I mean, like, squirrel, look over here. (laughs) And not even really directly addressing those reputational shortfalls that were that were caused by a really what had to have been a toxic culture internally. So I've said many times, I mean, I'm an ethics advocate, particularly within organizations and systems that end up controlling people's destinies, their ability to compete fairly. But I don't consider myself perfect or infallible. I think anyone can make a mistake. I've made mistakes in my career, in my life. I mean, we, as humans, that's something that happens. 
it's just the, it's the way that you handle that that is really where your your ethical decision making and all of that has to then come into play of um, you know how do you recover from something that maybe has gone wrong or that you've inadvertently made a mistake so Kelly when someone does make an ethics driven mistake and it's it is ethics driven what do you advise them to do in the in the wake of something like that well, that's pretty easy. I mean, it's you have to admit that you were wrong and yeah. that you made a mistake and it's okay that you admit that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you just have to say, I'm sorry. I mean, mm-hmm. those two it's little so words simple. cannot be underestimated. I'm sorry goes a long way. And then you have to change. Yeah. I mean, you have to be willing to decide if you're going to live by an ethics standard or not. Yeah. And if you made a mistake and you realize it, you can correct that and you need to publicly disclose yeah. what you're doing to correct whatever issue it was and say, I'm sorry. Well, and that reminds me so much about the PRSA situation. In the first year that I had so many issues there, I got tons of apologies from their chair elect that year. They were private apologies. They were never public. And then later he seemed to disavow that he had ever apologized for anything. But the the key, and I we told him this, my colleague Susan Hart and I told him many times that if you are not going to change the policies, if no one is going to be accountable for what's been going on that we find ethically problematic, then apologies mean nothing. They mean, and, and it's insulting to our intelligence for you to be giving apologies that we're just going to keep seeing the same behavior time yeah. and time again. So uh, this to me has been a good discussion. And if if you can't tell already, it's been cathartic for me. <laughs> so Kelly- it's good the, therapy session. Yeah, it is. Thanks for your support, really, Kelly. Thank you. And, and listeners, we would love to know what you think. What does it mean to you when a company is in an ethics washing posture or they've been an offender in that kind of area. Let us know on social media with the hashtag misinterpreted, and that's hashtag MSinterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. And listeners, please follow Fletcher Marketing PR at Twitter handle at Fletcher PR. You can also follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher and Mary Beth at Mary Beth West. Our special thanks to Chris Hill, our sound engineer at HumblePod. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 